It is so good to be here today. It feels like uh, much longer than just a few months that we've been gone. We've missed seeing so many faces and receiving so many hugs, and uh, it's just great to be here today. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Matt Hardy. Um, we attended this congregation for seven-ish years or so uh, until last September, where we moved houses and moved uh, congregations and joined uh, Cross Point Cape. Um, it's been a beautiful experience helping them plant the gospel there. Uh, today, it's a very cold experience planting the gospel there. They meet outside in a pavilion. Um, so it offers many beautiful opportunities to connect with people in the park sometimes, and we get to sing God's praises in the open air, and, but today it's cold. So <laughs> say a prayer for them as they lean in and listen to God's word and be thankful for uh, heating and seats uh, that are comfortable um, it, it's always an honor and a privilege to, to open God's Word. Um, Jeremiah asked me just yesterday if I could preach for him today, and he gave me a concession of that I could preach anything I wanted. So uh, I was excited about that. Um, we're going to look at my favorite chapter, which is Ephesians 2 today. We're going to look at the whole chapter. There's something special about coming back here and preaching today. It feels like coming home, even though this isn't my home congregation anymore. It feels like home, and there's something so nice about that. As we look at Ephesians 2 today, I pray that when we're done, we'll see that the reason for that, that Christ has made us one. So it doesn't matter which congregation we're in. If we're there with our brothers and sisters, we're at home. We're one with those people. If you don't attend church on vacation, I would recommend that you do. If you're traveling somewhere, find a congregation and, and go and join. I don't say that just as someone preaching. I say that as a congregant. Um, there's something so awesome about walking into a congregation that you don't belong in. And when you see the people of God and you're singing songs and you're hearing the same gospel being preached, you get to be one. And you get to have a family in a place that you've never been before. Um, so whether it's out of, out of the city, out of the state, or out of the country, it's something unique that's offered to us. And so we're going to learn more about that today in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is probably a familiar chapter for a lot of people. I know I'm not alone in saying it's my favorite chapter. Um, so I'd ask you, if you've heard a sermon before, you probably have, lean in, listen again, listen afresh, listen anew. I think God has something for us today in this. Uh, we're going to read it in two sections. The first section is 1, one through 10. So uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we were all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, us, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for this, Lord, this beautiful proclamation of your gospel. I pray, Lord, that um, we would hear the gospel with fresh ears, or that we would hear it with new eyes. Lord, that your gospel would work as only it can. Lord, that you would soften hearts. Lord, that your spirit would be working even today, as we know it is. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So this is, this section of Ephesians, for me, is one of the most beautiful, succinct presentations of the gospel. We hear the, we hear the gospel. We hear what we were and what we are and how it was done, Right? And there's more than enough theology just to to sit in these first 10 verses. There's enough doctrine and theology to sit in these first 10 verses for probably 10 Sundays, right? But I want to talk about the whole chapter, so we've got even more to do. My goal isn't to keep us until after lunch, though, so we're not going to be as deep as we could be, but I I want us to listen for some themes. There's some themes that reoccur even inside the section and throughout the chapter. So we want to lean in and pay attention to some of these themes that are happening. So, just real quick, the beginning of Ephesians, Paul starts the way he starts most letters, extolling the virtues of Christ, reminding the recipients of the letter of what Christ has done. He tells them about their adoption, their predestination, redemption, forgiveness. Um, He continues to speak about his thankfulness and his prayers for the people. Once again, calling to mind the magnificence of Jesus Christ as he so does so eloquently, what he accomplished on their behalf. And then we jump into chapter 2, verse 1. And it starts off with quite a statement. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul is never afraid to be direct. I love that about him. He's never afraid to just tell the truth. He's not worried about hurting people's feelings here. He's laying out the truth of the fallen condition. And the word he uses is dead. He doesn't say you were sick. He doesn't say you were injured. He doesn't say you were failing. He says you were dead. Right? I looked up the Greek just in case, and the word means dead. It's, <laughs> it's necros. It means dead. Right? And everyone knows that dead means dead. Right? We don't live in the Princess Bride world where you're mostly dead or kind of dead. You're either dead or you're alive. Right? The light is on. The light is off. She's pregnant, she's not pregnant, right? It's one or the other. It's key to understanding that, though. Um, what we're talking about is dead. Dead. So with that understanding before us, that without Christ, before Christ, we are spiritually, utterly dead. Let's move on to the implications of what that means, the fruit of being dead. We look quickly, and it says... Uh, the cause of our death is quickly revealed. It's, it's trespasses and sins, right? Trespasses and sins are our natural state. We see them in our children from, from ver- the very beginning almost, right? We don't teach our kids to fight. We don't teach our kids to hit and struggle and quarrel, right? They come pre-equipped that way. It's built in from the beginning, as adults, we didn't take a class on how to have rage behind the wheel, right? It just comes that way. It's in us. Without even diving into the doctrine of original sin that says we're born with sin, 
It's enough to see the sin that's evident in our hearts without Christ. We can see it clearly. And that's what he references here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Right? So verse 1 starts off with this bold proclamation telling us we're dead. But we already have some hope in verse 2. Immediately it says, in which you once walked. Right? Critical. In which the tense, in which you once walked. The people he's talking to are no longer walking that way. They're no longer walking the walk of the dead people. Right? It's, it's critical that we pay attention to that. Praise God, right? Praise God that if we are in Christ, we are no longer walking this way. But it's important to remember. So let's look at how dead people walk. They, they are followers, right? right? It says, in following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we see there are people who follow. They follow the course of this world. They follow Satan, right? When it says the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. They are following him. And we don't talk about Satan all that much at cross point, but we talk about him when scripture talks about him, right? And scripture's talking about him here. And he has laid claim to these dead people, these people without Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you're inside of something else, right? It's, it's again, it's a choice. You're either, you're either alive or you're dead. You're either with Christ or not with Christ. And not with Christ, then Satan has laid claim to you. We see his followers referred to as the sons of disobedience right? It's a striking title. We see so often how Christ calls us sons. He calls us adopted heirs, sons and daughters. He's adopted us, and we take great pleasure and great joy in that, in that relationship we have. But outside of Christ, Satan too lays claim and says, they're sons of disobedience, right? It's a little bit scary. Verse 3 carries us deeper into what, it's, what the true walking dead look like on the inside, See, they lived a life in the passions of the flesh. Lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So they lived out every hedonistic desire, right? There was no reason not to. If it felt good, do it. If you wanted to do it, do it. Why not? Right? It was just a natural course of what was happening. Follow, follow your heart, right? That's the, that's the advice we often get. These people were following their heart without any safeguards, without Christ. And we see that when we think about the fruit of walking in dead versus the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These fruit of the Spirit are unnatural, right? They don't occur in us naturally. They occur in us because of what Christ has done, because of the Spirit in us. It's not a natural walk. It's unnatural but he goes on to call them children of wrath. Right? They're behaving like children. They're behaving like children do, just doing whatever they want to do without regard. And they're children of wrath, which is scary. Right? They're going to be under God's wrath, children left under their own. And so there again, they're, he's calling them children, right? They're a familial term. They're children of Satan. Right? It's a family we don't want to be a part of. <laughs> it's a family we shouldn't want anybody to be a part of. We often forget, or maybe we don't like to talk about, the wrath of God, right? 
but rather focus on his love and his mercy. But we can't, right? God is all things equally. He's all things equally perfect. It's hard for us to understand, but his love is perfect, and his mercy is perfect, and his justice is perfect, and his wrath is perfect, right? So God is a God of perfect wrath, and this wrath is tied to these children of the devil, these dead trespassers and sinners against God. Right? This is this is bad. This is bad news. This is very bad news. If if we're outside of Christ, then God's perfect wrath is against you as a child of the devil. It's our natural position to be in that, to be children of the devil without Christ. We just heard in Mark uh, last week about the seriousness of sin. Right? God takes sin seriously, and so should we. And there's a high price to be paid for those who die in that sin. A scary price. Right? But as we, as we keep reading, we quickly see the story takes a turn. Right? There's a huge pivot. The whole Christian, convinges, the whole Christian condition hinges on these two words. Right? In the beginning... Or verse 4, it says two words, but God, right? We have, we have all this horrible news, all this bad news, the children of wrath, children of the devil. God's perfect wrath is against you. And we see the word but, right? It's not, it's not ignoring all those things. It's not saying all those things didn't matter. It's saying, look at all these things that we're naturally, we're in, but the good news, God. Right, and we're going we're gonna to unpack what that means. But that, if you want to say the gospel in two words, but God, right? I was dead in sin. I was walking a path. I was, God's wrath was against me, against us, against you, but God, right? It's beautiful. So we see symmetry as we, as we unpack, as we, as we walk through what it meant to be dead, we're going to walk through what it means to, to being alive. We saw our cause of death was trespasses and sins, and in four we see, but God being rich in mercy. He is rich in love and justice and wrath, and he is rich in mercy. Right? This should bring us great relief. This should bring us a peace, right? He is rich in mercy. He doesn't ignore who we were. He doesn't ignore that we were trespassers, right? But he is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Right? This is, this is amazing. We were dead. We were sinners. We were followers of Satan, but God loved us. Right? No business. No business loving us. What kind of what kind of earthly king loves the rebels? Right? You put down the rebels. You don't let the rebels assemble and, and get together and try to take over your kingdom. But but God loved us because of his richness and mercy. He says, even even while but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
right? When we were dead, when we were dead and trusted, made us alive together with Christ. Now, this is a miracle, right? We don't see this happen. We don't see things that are dead come back to life. It's only happened once, right? That was with Christ himself. But it happens on a spiritual level in us. And this is what God does. This is what Christ does. He takes things that are broken and dead and makes them restored and alive. Christ is resuscitating the dead. He made us alive together with Christ, right? This is going to be key, together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. As we, hold, as we move forward in the text, I want you to remember that. Both our union with Christ and our union together. And scripture continues to lay it out even more clearly as we, as we move forward. By grace you have been saved. Right? By grace you have been saved. We've been saved from his wrath. We've been saved from eternal punishment. We've been saved into a family. And that's enough. Right? We could end here. We have been saved. Praise God. Sermon over. We could be done with it. That's enough to praise God for eternity. But there's more. I feel like I should say, but wait, there's more, the infomercial. But um, there is more. God over-delivers, right, as he often does. So by grace you have been saved. And then six, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Right? So we're saved in Christ Jesus. We get to be with Christ Jesus. We get to be in the throne room with, with God. He's invited us in to the Holy of Holies. We're given access. We're given a full view of the miracles of, of heaven, the, the wonder that is what John describes in, in Revelation. We get, to, we get to be with God, restored again, like walking in the cool of the garden. This is what he has purchased, to see that little slice of heaven. In, in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show us immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Right? It's going to take forever, literally forever in heaven to understand what was accomplished for us. Right? We're, we're trying to do it in 45 minutes. It's going to take forever. And, and I know for some of us the idea of an eternal theology class might not sound too exciting. But when we think about who the teacher is, right, we get to be taught by Jesus <laughs> in the throne room, in the presence of God. We get to learn forever about his love and his grace, the richness of his mercy. Those words seem hollow now compared to what we will understand in, in eternity. So I hope you're excited that we get to do that at, at some point. I don't think anybody's going to want to skip that class. So we see, we, we keep reading in, in 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Right? I think Paul's trying to make a point here. Scripture's trying to make a point. 
because it keeps saying the same thing over and over again. It's, it's told us we were dead, which means we're helpless, right? It says by grace you have been saved, right? So it wasn't us. And then again, 8 and 9 goes on to tell us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, in case, you know, we didn't know what grace was, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. On and on. Um, you didn't do this, is what it's saying, over and over and over again. It should have been obvious when he told us we were dead, that we didn't save ourselves, right? But he reminds us that it's a gift of God, it's not a result of work, so we have no right to brag. Why explain it again? Why the warning of boasting if it's been made clear to us over and over again? I'll, I'll tell you why. Let's, let's turn to the verse in Scripture that says, God helps those who helps themselves. Right? If you're having trouble finding it, it's because it's not in there. But I think each of us, a piece of us, want that verse to be in there. Right? There's something in us that says, I think I could contribute something, right? right? We want to be independent. Jeremiah has a definition of sin that says, when you sin, it's saying, on my own, I can live. Right? That's what sin is. It's pride that sneaks up. It says either I can contribute to my salvation or I can... I can damage my salvation with my, with my bad acts, right? I, I contribute. Have you seen how much I read the Bible? Right? Have, have you seen how much I give an offering? Did you see me volunteer? Surely God's seen me stack the chairs in the service, right? Surely God's seen me do these other things. He's seen me suffer through a church plant, right? Surely God has seen these things. There's a, there's a verse for me that when I was a young Christian, was pretty scary. I didn't fully understand. It's Matthew 7.22. If you want to turn there with me, it's worth looking at together. Matthew 7.22 and 23. So we'll start with 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It could be a scary verse, right? This person prophesied and cast out demons, did mighty works. I've never cast out a demon, right? What, what mighty works have I done? I don't even know people who have cast out demons. So they all sound like great things to do, right? It wasn't until I understood grace that I began to see 722 properly, right? There's nothing wrong with the list of the works that people did here. They're good works. They're great works. But, but when you see this argument that the person is making, standing in front of the Savior, and they even mention they did things in his name, but everything they mention is something that they did. I did this, and we did this, and we did this. 
There was no mention of what Christ had done. Right? That is our argument. Our argument is not that I stacked chairs and I preached on a Sunday. Right? Our argument is what Christ has done for us. It's so, so tempting. There's so much in us. The pride that we have to constantly fight to say, I have no argument on my own. When we stand before our maker, we have but one argument. It's that I am Christ and he is mine. There's a ministry over in Orlando called Ligonier, and they do a lot of great resources. And one of the things they put out is a, it's called the State of Theology. They ask a list of questions out to the general public, and they ask them out to all to different denominations, different churches, uh, some people who aren't in church at all. One of the questions that struck me that they asked, and it's been a few years ago now, but it was this question. It said, by the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. Right? By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. 52% of all respondents agree with this statement. Right? By the good deeds that I do. When we look at Ephesians, when we look at Ephesians 2, we just, we just can't say that. Right? This is not there. We're dead. There's a, there's a common analogy that you see that I think may lead to this, this way of thinking, though. It's, it's, it's often taught that we're drowning in a sea of, sin, a sea of sin, right? And Christ is on a lifeboat, and he throws us the, the flotation ring. And our act is that we reach out and grab the ring, and then Christ pulls us in. Right? I don't know if you've heard that before. I've heard it before. Seen it taught other places. Sounds okay, right? Christ does most of the work. He provides the salvation. All we have to do is step over and grab the ring and he pulls us into the boat. I just don't think that's right. <laughs> when we look at Ephesians 2, I just don't think that's right. I think we're dead. Because it said we're dead. Uh, if you saw a dead person reach out and grab a ring, it'd be pretty concerning. We're, we're dead. Those of you who know me best know I do enjoy Christian hip-hop. You know, maybe the beard gave it away, I don't know. But um, one of my favorite artists is Shylin. I, I love Shylin. He has a song called Election, and he describes this process. He describes what it is to be saved. He says, Reality, we were dead at the bottom of the sea. I was a swollen, co- or a swollen corpse with hope no more. Until Jehovah the Lord dove from the shore to the ocean floor. Yeah, I was a corpse and I smelt like it. I'll keep it simple. Why did God chose me? Because he felt like it. He brought me out, not an act of my volition, breathed life into my lungs and didn't ask for my permission. Right? It's essential that we understand for where we're going next. We contribute nothing to our salvation. The only thing we could possibly contribute would be our sin. Right? We contribute nothing. If we could contribute to our salvation... It would be that source of pride, right? Look what I have done. If we contribute to our salvation, that means we could fail, right? What if Christ sacrificed for me and I didn't contribute enough, and then Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient, right? If we could contribute to our salvation, we would have reason to judge others who did not contribute enough, or as much as we did, right? What's made abundantly clear is that we cannot and do not contribute to our salvation, 
I'll say that again, we cannot and do not contribute to our salvation. So that truth in mind, let's finish out this first section of the chapter. Verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? It's an affirmation that even the good works that we do were prepared for us. Right? Christ has prepared us for the good work through his workmanship. There is no reason to boast. We see we walk in a new direct opposition to the walk we walked of the dead people. We're walking in the good works that he's prepared. It's truly amazing. He prepared works for us when we were sinners that we would walk in today. We used to follow every desire of our heart. Now, if we follow Christ, he has something prepared for us. It's a call again to stay away from pride, right? So like I said, there's a lot in those first 10 verses I'd love to just spend more time in. We're going to keep going. I want us to see uh, the second, uh, second part of the chapter, which I think gets overlooked as it's connected to the first. So I'm going to go back and read uh, Ephesians 2, starting at 11 to the end. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at times, at time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For though him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right? There's a lot in there. He starts it with therefore. Right? Which means... Remember everything we just talked about in the first 10 verses and take that into this section. Therefore, right? Therefore, remember. We see this one's talking about more about the difference between the, the Jews and the Gentiles. Right? So we, we carry those comparisons. It's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles in a specific way, and it's important to remember their place in the story in order for this to make sense. We're reminded immediately of the difference of a physical difference. There were the Jews, a.k.a. the circumcised, and the uncircumcision, referring uh, to the Gentiles. Paul says this is of the flesh, right? This is a physical, this is a physical thing made, by, made in the flesh by the hands. So we see Paul telling the Gentiles, and Paul called himself the apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul refers to himself as that way, and, and they were separated from Christ. Right? As, as we go through the Old Testament, there were... There were the people who were in Christ, was Israel, 
and everyone else was outside, right outside of God. They were alienated. They were having no hope. They were otherly. They were outsiders. Right? That's one of the most harsh things they could hear. They were outside of God. And that is to be without hope. But we see a, we see a turning point in the second section as well. Right? Much like we saw but God in the first section. Right? We, see, we see it here in uh, 13. But now in Christ Jesus. Right? But now in Christ Jesus. So this is the new truth, right? The old truth was you had to be in Israel. The new truth is we have to be in Christ, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near, right? Amazing what Christ has accomplished. We see that he draws us near, and it's not just Christ, but his blood sacrifice, right? By the blood of Christ. That's how it was accomplished, the people who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That closed the distance for those who were outside, those who had no hope, those who were without God are brought near through his blood. And then we see a little snippet in here that's easy to overlook. Verse 14 starts, For he himself is our peace. I read this chapter many times and overlooked that sweet little nugget of truth. For he himself is our peace. Right? How many people here enjoy peace? Right? Peace is nice. Peace is rare, it seems like, these days. How many of us are busy? Right? We just want a little peace. Our calendars are overflowing with events, with kids and sports and life and everything else. We just want a little peace. And what's the solution we get uh, from the world? We get conflict resolution books, self-help books, advice like take a vacation, book a timeshare, send your kids off with the grandparents, right? Perhaps your your peace is sitting at the beach and watching the sunrise. Perhaps it's reading a great book by yourself. Maybe it's just in the 20 minutes between activity A and activity B. Maybe it's just the three minutes interrupted by yourself. Maybe your need for peace is deeper, though. What if you're in the midst of a conflict between your boss or a coworker? Or what if you hate your spouse or your spouse hates you? Right? What if you just need some peace? What if your baby is growing up or grown up and rejected the gospel? What if what we love most is taken from us, right? This past year for Tracy and I both has been the most difficult year of our life by far with this conflicts and issues and, and stuff with the kids and there's been so much and it's felt like wave after wave after wave after wave and we're just stuck in the sand taking the waves right in the face and you're just praying. I remember telling Tracy in tears like, I just want a break. I just need peace. I just need peace for a week, two weeks without, without something happening, right? And we have it. And I had forgotten it when I said that to her. <laughs> we have it here. For he himself is our peace, right? Man, what a relief. It's not something we have to work up. 
It's not something we have to go find. It's not something we have to study. It's not something we have to, you know, get better at. It says, he himself is our peace. Amen. Peace is Christ Jesus. If you want to seek peace, right, we seek Christ. And we do it together. He himself is our peace. And it, the rest of the verse and the rest of the verse, the next couple of verses really unpacks what that means that our peace is in Jesus. It says, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right? In the Jewish and Gentile word, world, there were many walls, both physical and cultural, metaphorical. There were literal walls that kept them apart. There were literal walls that kept Jews and Gentiles uh, apart from each other, right? But we see that Christ in his flesh broke down the dividing walls, right? He made a people who were walking around dead, following our flesh, following Satan, people who were aliens and strangers. He's made us one by tearing down the walls that should have divided us. He's doing the same for the, for the Gentiles and the Jews as he did for those inside and outside of Christ. It's that old adage, right? Good fences make good neighbors. You've probably heard that one. And that's what they believed at the time, but it wasn't true. And Jesus tore down those, tore down those fences. It was Christ through his actual, historical, physical flesh, his bodily sacrifice tore down the walls of hostility that existed for millennia. The wall of hostility was torn down between Jew and Gentile and between God and us. In Matthew, when it talks about the account of the cross and what happened on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So on the temple there was a curtain, not like a curtain you have in your house. This curtain was as thick as a man's hand, so about four inches thick of material. And when Christ died, that was split, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, so nobody could have done it. Split in half and revealed what should not have been revealed to the average person. It revealed a holy of holies. Right? That wall was torn down. The access to God was restored. It kept everyone out, and Christ tore it down down the barrier. That's what he did. He removed the need for the intercessor. He's removed the need for the Jew and Gentile to be separated. In verse 15, we see the Mosaic ordinances removed that separated Jew and Gentile. 16 calls us one body through the cross with a death of hostility. Right? One body that's key. It's like in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, says this, which are more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are one body, and that was purchased for us through his sacrifice. And it's a body that's in peace with itself. Right? There's not division. 
This is the body of peace in Christ. There's not hostility, but there's empathy. There's not discord here, but unity. May we seek Christ together, so that is how people would describe us, right? Unified, right? Wouldn't that be nice to be described as unified and, and peaceful? But we can't seek those things. You can't seek unification. Somehow that ends up in division. If we seek uh, peace on our own, that won't happen either. We have to seek Christ. I've said it before and I'll say it again. That is, that is how we become one body. That is how we become unified, by seeking Christ. We read that Christ came and he preached peace. And we know peace is him. <laughs> and to those who were far off and he preached peace, again himself, to those that were near. The message is the same. The message of reconciliation, the message of the gospel through Jesus was preached to the Jews who counted themselves close and to the Gentiles who were far outside the covenant. The message is the same today. Why do we preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? If you come here expecting to hear something different, I pray you never hear it. I pray every Sunday that's what's preached from this pulpit is the gospel. But why? Why do we preach it, right? Why do we demand the proclamation of the good news? Aren't most of us already saved? Aren't we already in Christ, you know? Haven't we heard the gospel a thousand times already? Um, why do we need to hear it again and again and again? Because it's all we have, right? That's all we have to offer is the good news of Jesus Christ. We haven't come up with anything better to tell you in 2,000 years, right? That is the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's sufficient, right? Whether we are count ourselves near or whether we count ourselves far off, the gospel is sufficient, right? It is the same message that Christ preached to those near and far, and it's the same message we will preach over and over again. In verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Right? So what was broken in Genesis 3 is restored. Right? We have access to the Father. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and had flaming swords stuck in the ground with a giant angel guarding the gate. They didn't even try to go back <laughs> Right? They were cut off from access. They had, they had access like you couldn't believe, like walking in the garden with the creator in the cool of the morning. Man, how sweet is that? But the access has been restored. It says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That is sweet. He did it so completely that we see in 19, we go from a status of outsiders to a status of citizens and members of the household, right? It says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we have a new family, right? There is one family, there is one body, and that is in Christ. And we see a blueprint for this house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, right? The word of God spoken from the apostles and the prophets of God written to us today, right? This is the foundation. 
Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, the key piece that holds it all together. You pull the cornerstone away and the whole thing collapses. It's built around him. It's built for him. What's been accomplished from verse 1 to the end of this chapter should blow us away, right? The, let's read the first two verses. It says, And you were dead, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then let's read the last two two verses, 21 and 22. It says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right? How key is is that but God? Right? But in Christ. Right? He took dead members of Satan's family and turned them into a temple, right? A tabernacle, a place with God. If you go through the first few books of the Old Testament, there's there's uh, a lot of stuff in there, and it's it's not easy to read sometimes. In the midst of laws about donkeys and and numbers and measurements and counting of people. Uh, there is a description of the tabernacle and what it took for God to be present amongst his people. And in this description of the tabernacle, every detail is laid out. There's to be this many lampstands and they're to be made out of this material and the altar has to be this and there's to be this much blood and there's this kind of curtain and every detail was to be laid out so that it would be perfect And so that God would be there. And that was the holy of holies. God's presence was there. What we see in Ephesians is that God took dead sinners and cleaned them up so that his presence could be in them. Right? He took dead people and he made them into his temple. He took us from being dead And has given us his spirit to be in us so that we have access to God without separation. He's given us that. Praise be to God. Right? Praise be to God. There's a lot of things we could take away from this. What does this mean for Monday? Right? What does this mean when we go back into our life, what are some things we should take away? I think one of the things to take away is that we are one. We are unified. We're unified in Christ, by Christ, through Christ. Right? This world today is full of division. Right? It's easy to find unity in anything you want to find unity in. Just find a Facebook group and there's a thousand people who think the same thing about something that you do. Right? But our unity that we must seek is not a unity around uh, what it is to be a Reformed Baptist or what it is to be Crosspoint or what it is to be here. It is a unity in Christ. Right? We need to remember that our salvation had nothing to do with us. Right? Again, it's Christ. Christ saved us. 
from a state of death into the tabernacle, right? So we have no reason to boast. We need to remember that if you're outside of Christ right now, if you don't say that that's me, that it's, it's not your goodness that will save you, and it's not your badness that will damn you. It's Christ who saves you. And he's willing and able, right? I think the main thing we need to remember is that praise is praise be to Christ, praise be to God for what he has done. We have every Sunday we call this a celebration and remembrance service. And that's what we're doing. We're celebrating. Praise be to God that he took dead people like us and he gave us himself. Right? Join me in prayer. God, we thank you. And that's not enough for the miracle of salvation. That you would rescue, that you would resuscitate, that you would see us as enemies and rebels and reach down and call us, collect us and call us your sons and daughters that you would save us and then seat us in Christ with you. That you've already restored access to the Father. Help us celebrate now on this side of heaven. Give us a joy. Help us remember what it is that you've accomplished. Help us remember that you are our peace. Help us look forward to being with each other as we are unified in you. Help us to seek more and more our oneness that you've purchased. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.